The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 665 for Sunday, July 9th, 2017. Greetings, folks, and... Welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found, and we share them all, answer them, discuss them, dissect them, with the goal being each and every one of us, me included, learns at least four new things every single time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include Jamf Now. At Jamf, J-A-M-F dot com slash M-G-G, where you can get your first three devices free for life managed by Jamf. We'll talk about that in a moment. Also, Barebones Software at Barebones.com, makers of the esteemed BB Edit that still doesn't suck. We'll talk more about that in a little while, too. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Brown. How are you today, my squeaky-chaired friend? Yeah, I got to fix that. Some WD-40 there. <laughs> yeah. It's usually not very audible. Hmm. No, I heard it right as I was doing the uh, the intro to the show. You must have been, you know, adjusting or moving or whatever. So I, oh, I, no, it stopped. Okay, I'm leaning back. But um, yeah. how am I doing? I don't know. Um, honestly, you know, I think my next broadcast may be from the big house, Dave. Uh, are you talking about uh, Hampton Inn in McHenry, Illinois? Is that right? Oh, no, no. Oh, okay. No, the big house. <laughs> the big house. I, I don't, uh, I'm not well, sure. Well, I just, uh, I, I got this voicemail on my, uh, on oh. my phone. Oh. And um, apparently the IRS has issued an arrest warrant for me and they are monitoring me and my physical property. So it's very important that I call them back. Well, what I was talking about is the fact that you and I are going to be at Stock this coming weekend. The Yes. 14th through the 17th of July, but really Max Stock happens for the 15th and 16th, uh, just outside of Chicago, Illinois. And uh, I missed it last year because I was actually in France or something. Uh, I think that was our, our final weekend of our family Europe vacation last year, but I really enjoyed it the prior year and am very much looking forward to going back. And I, I'm speaking too. I'm speaking on Sunday afternoon about... Uh, about mesh networks, which is going to be very interesting for me and hopefully for everyone in the audience, because these are 20 minute sessions. And every time I've gone somewhere to speak about mesh, um, the Q&A portion has lasted about two hours. So uh, so this will be interesting. I'm 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 working. I, I have whittled down my my talk. I actually have a way of, of presenting this. I think that will be valuable uh, and efficient in 20 minutes and. There you go. So should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. It's always a good group of people at Max Stock. So, but the funny thing, Dave, is so after getting this voicemail, and by the way, um, just in case you don't know, you will never get a call from the IRS demanding that you pay them with uh, iTunes gift cards or right green whatever. But oddly enough, the day after I got that voicemail, I actually did get a physical letter from the <laughs> IRS. That's awesome. <laughs> which I knew was authentic. Um, as far as I can tell, and it basically was, they had, uh, mangled, I think one of the forms that I had submitted and, was, sure. and basically asked me to resubmit it. It was legit. But then a friend of mine said, well, that could be fake. And the thing is there are people, apparently there are scams. I'll post a link. They actually have a link on the IRS site, but 
Some people are using physical mail to try to scam people, but they all involve the IRS to, uh, demanding payment immediately or else you're going to, you're going to, like I said, we are so house. far off the rails. It's ridiculous. We have yeah. barely even started the show and we're way over there. I'm going to try and bring us back though. <laughs> well, okay. I did talk about mail and we'll be talking about mail shortly. We so will. It's kind of relevant. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I'm going to jump to that now. We're going to do a bunch of cool stuff found here. And the first one that we're going to do is one that I stumbled on recently called um, USPS, the US Postal Service Informed Delivery. So if you go to informeddelivery.usps.com, you get to see something that the Postal Service has been seeing or at least able to see for years. The U.S. Post Office scans every piece of mail that goes through it. Yeah, not they don't open it and scan it as far as we know, but they do scan the uh, I believe. It, 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 well, certainly the front, maybe the back of the envelope slash package. And uh, and now you get to see that if you sign up for informed delivery, you will be able to you can you can get an email, but you can also see it online. Uh, those scans of things that are coming in. Now you're going to see them when they arrive anyway, unless they don't arrive and you can actually tell the postal service, this piece never made it. Uh, but it's an interesting thing. Uh, I don't know. You know, if, if you like that kind of stuff, it's nice to get, you know, an email notification of here's what's coming in your mailbox today, especially uh, I can't get informed delivery or my USPS to work on my PO box, but some people have reported being able to do that. And that's where I see it being really handy. If your mail doesn't come to your home, if it comes to, you know, some other place via, via USPS, uh, you can, you know, being able to see what's coming, you know, when to go and check your mail and when not to bother. So that's cool stuff. So that's why it's here and cool stuff found. Right. I Good. like it. Yeah. And I, I, having worked in postal for a while, I actually did see this. The reason they scan is because you can still address an envelope using uh using handwritten right. address. Right. And the thing is they try to OCR or they try to do recognition, but sometimes it has to get handed over to a person to actually read it and key in the zip. And you want to talk about a mind numbingly boring job, right? In an envelope and punching in the zip or zip plus four. Right. Um, right. So that's why they capture the, uh, the image um, as part of that scanning process. The, the OCR better, process. Yeah. A much better thing is if you're going to address something to someone, if you print it out in a nice font uh, or it's typewritten or OCRable, uh, there's a much better chance it's going to get where it's going. Makes sense. All right. But it's Sweet. nice that they expose that. Um, yeah. And then they've had for a while, they've improved their, um, I think it's called My Choice. Um, I thought it was just My USPS, but I could be wrong on that. But they've improved also, you can also choose to uh, get notifications when certain things are being sent to you. Right. And I get this, you, either a text or an email or something like that. You, UPS and FedEx do, do the same thing. Yep. But, um, but it's nice. I was like getting a message saying I'm going to get a present. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, jumping. Well, we'll jump to Steve because Steve sent this in. He says, uh, I've been using the app My Data Manager version 7.4 for iOS to track my own and my family's data usage because it's one of the only apps I've found that does shared data plan monitoring. Uh, he says, while the app is really slick, he says, I recently decided to try its cool app tracker function. This feature allows real-time detailed breakdowns of which app is using cellular Wi-Fi or roaming data, which is pretty cool. He says, when you enable this, though, 
the app asks to install a VPN, which the app uses to monitor all traffic. This is in, we talked about this uh, with other VPN uses, but apps don't get to see what other apps are doing, but VPNs do. So this is a way of sort of injecting itself there. And it makes sense. Uh, Steve continues. He says, obviously I'm worried about security packet, sniffing passwords, encrypted data, etc., all being routed through the VPN and the security related to doing this. Do you have any thoughts on this? Is it safe and secure to do this? Then I'd be happy to recommend it as a cool stuff found. But if it's a hacker's honeypot, then I'd want people to know. And I honestly don't know. Um, you know, most of the time when you sign up for sort of a traditional VPN, you get uh, their privacy policy, which states we don't look at what you're doing. We have no interest in what you're doing and we discard all of that data. You know, we don't save it with this, though. The point is for it to look at what you're doing and to retain and analyze that data such that you get to know what your app or what what data what apps are using data when and on which devices so yes there is this data now most apps but not necessarily all because apple has yet to mandate this even though they said they would by this year most apps use secure transport in order to talk to their own servers so even though you're you know let's say spotify even though and i believe spotify does use secure transport uh even though spotify is going through a vpn um the data that's being sent across that VPN is encrypted. So you don't like, they know that Spotify is using data, but that's it. They don't, they can't see passwords. They can't see anything going through. So uh, as long as your apps are using secure transport, that part of it is, is okay. But if the fact that you're using a specific app um, is something that you don't want divulged, then I would say by all means, do not enable that feature. Um, and don't let them track that through their VPN. So I have no reason not to trust the My Data Manager people, but uh, but that the corollary to that is true. I have no specific reason to trust them other than the fact that generally money talks, and they're in business to sell this app. So I, I think I think there's a a uh, better than even shot that they are doing everything on the up and up because if they weren't, uh, that would be bad for business. So there you go. Most people are probably pretty good. You know, what do you think, John? I would hope so. Um, if you want something with a, a little less resolution, um, I use, though, not as much anymore now because uh, Verizon actually uh, has a widget telling me my data usage. But there's also Data Man. Yeah, right. Which doesn't break it down to the application level. So if, if that's a concern, then... Um, Data man may be more appropriate for uh, for your needs, and it basically shows your yeah from Xvision, uh, yep. but it basically shows okay how much cell have I used and how much Wi-Fi have I used during my billing period, right? And that's uh that's good to know. Yeah, yep. cool. All right, uh, moving right along. I have been using for the past uh, a couple of weeks the Connects K A N E X is how they pronounce that. Uh, the Go Power Watch Stand, and this is actually a pretty cool thing. Uh, it is an Apple Watch charger, and it has the puck built into it. Uh, it's the first of the sort of non-sketchy devices that I've seen that has its own puck that you don't have to provide your own, which is cool. Um, 
And it holds your watch up and off the desk or nightstand at a nice little angle. And uh, it's got uh, an inbound USB, obviously, for, for power, but also outbound USB. So you can plug your phone cable in and charge that, too. Uh, very, very cool stuff. And and it's it's not cheap. It's 80 bucks, but uh, or $79.95. We'll put a link in the show notes. But remember, that includes the puck, which you're going to pay, I think, 30 bucks for anyway. So nice little stand. I am. Um, it, and, and actually, I say I've been using it. I started using it, and then my wife commandeered it. So I always know that, that that's sort of the litmus test for me is what happens to things when they enter my home. Do other people want them? And if so, probably a good chance that you might like it, too. So pretty cool. All right. Uh, so that's, yeah, the Connects Go Power watch stand. I've got, uh, I got a couple more. You know, I was in Maine visiting relatives, John, over the July 4th weekend. And I set up the new TP-Link Deco system. That's their uh, mesh wireless system. And it's got, in the standard box, it's got three, um, you know, three access points. It, it's kind of like a lot of the others, like the Eero or the Luma, where the all three of the units are the same and one of them the first one you plug into your cable modem auto configures itself as the router and then the others will uh, sort of build the mesh it supports ethernet backhaul it um it works quite well every every it's got dual radios in each unit so kind of like the first gen eros that, that are out and and like the luma um and like google home or sorry not google home google wi-fi uh works it actually worked amazingly well um it has two things in it that are interesting one is it's got uh, parental controls which some of the other ones have and that's great it also has and, and the parental controls you set a um you know profile you assign devices to a specific person and then you can control what that person can or can't do and you can set time controls and filter levels in terms of what sites they can visit and all that good stuff it's also got an anti what they call an antivirus section in the app. And I believe when you buy a Deco system, it comes with three years of this uh, subscription. But the subscription really does three things. It's not just antivirus. It's got a malicious content filter for both inbound and outbound stuff. It's got an intrusion protection system and it has an infected device quarantine. So this is doing the kind of stuff that we've been talking about where it's monitoring the traffic that's going in and out and isolating a device if it starts acting poorly. And of course it will notify you in all of that because that would be worthless if it didn't, but, uh, but very, very interesting. And, you know, sort of brings to fruition that thought that I've, that I've had for a long time that the router is the place to do this. So very interesting to see TP link doing all of this stuff. Their uh, security database in this is, uh, is from Trend Micro. So, you know, it's a it's a trusted security system. Here's the cool part about Deco. You can buy a three-pack on Amazon for 248 bucks. That ain't a bad price. Really, my only complaint about Deco is the limitation of the app. For most people, and I would say probably 99% of most people, and maybe even 90% of this audience... It's going to do what you need, uh, but you don't get visibility. 
into things that you might want. Like you can't see which access point any given client device, like you can't see which access point your iPhone is connected to. You can't see whether it's connected, you know, to 2.4 or 5 gigahertz. You don't really get any indication that something is connected via Ethernet or or not. Um, you cannot control the local subnet. So as long as you want your local subnet to be 192.168.1, I believe, then uh, then that is what you can have. And if you want it to be something else, then you can't have something else. It's just 192.168.1. Again, for most people in most cases, this is not an issue. But for some people, it is. Um, that said, you know, TP-Link keeps updating the software. Just a month ago, it didn't support port forwarding or anything like that. Now that's been added. So uh, it is quite functional now for, again, most people and my uh, while I was up there, one of my other uncles, my family all kind of lives with, almost within walking distance of each other. There's like four of them uh, for four separate like households. And uh, and my other uncle said, all right, so what should I do? And, you know, I told him, I said, I really like the Eero, um, but for what he needs, being a non-geek, just wants it, wants it to work. We bought him a Deco system too for another 248 bucks. It's... Um, it works. And now, you know, two of them have them. And so they can help each other if they have any issues. And that, that's a good thing, too. So and of course, it's remote management possible and all that. So I just wanted now, to share did that. You, uh, I'm looking at the product description. Yeah. They do have one thing that I think others may have baked in, but it also claims that. Uh, well, the topic here is app usage outside, and they say, run your devices at your speed. That goes mobile app, goes beyond Wi-Fi. The app gives you the power right. to prioritize devices. Mm. It does. Oh, yeah. It's got QoS built into it, um, and it supports IPv6, too. So, you, you know, there's a lot of this stuff, and you can sort of, you can prioritize devices, and you can also prioritize how you want your network to run. They've got some QoS profiles, if you will, standard gaming, streaming, surfing, chatting, etc. So... Uh, which is pretty good. You know, it works. It's good. Nice. Are you going to uh, talk about that during your, I, I will include that. Yeah. My, yeah, my, my talk on Sunday at, at Mac stock will be more about teaching you folks how to pick which system is right for you than telling you which system is right for you. Ah. Teaching to fish, if you would. So. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, yeah, the Deco is is the right system for a lot of people just because of the price. You know, we looked at the Luma, too, but the Luma was 25 bucks more. So it was like, hey, OK, you know, there's really no difference um, in terms of, again, just that functionality of, you know, it might both of them now have their homes bathed in Wi-Fi in, in ways that they did not prior. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I like the uh, I like the specs. Yeah. it. I mean, you know, for for what it is, it's great. It's not. It's not tri-band, so it's not competing with, you know, the Orbi or the new version two Eero or the Lavelop, right? I mean, those are on a whole different level. But for most people, that's probably not important. You know, it, where my uncles are, it, where my family is uh, are in Maine, you know, the best speed they're going to get, like one of them gets 25 megabits down, the other one gets 36 megabits down. That's the best they've got. Now, there's some, there's some you know, threats of fiber being run down one of their streets. And if that happens, then it gets faster. Uh, so there you go. It's fun stuff. Speaking of summertime, I, uh, I've been checking out some ways of listening to music when you're not at home. And I am 
uh, this will come as no surprise to people who are uh, longtime listeners of the show. I am enamored again with this year's iteration of JBL's flip Bluetooth speaker, which is the flip four. It's, it's kind of the, uh, the barrel shaped speaker. Uh, it's great for putting in your suitcase. It's great for bringing to the beach. This one now is fully waterproof. Um, the sound of this one in comparison to last year's flip three flip three is, is on par. Um, the, the EQ structure has changed a little bit. I actually kind of like the EQ structure of this one better, but, um, but it sounds good. It's, it's filling. And the nice part is, you know, this is the, the speaker that I throw in my suitcase all the time uh, when I travel. So I'll have one of these with me at, um, at uh, you know, at Max Dog because that's what I'll have in my hotel room. The nice part is I can bring it in the shower with me. No worries. Uh, it's, it's waterproof. I don't have to leave it on the bathroom counter. I can put it in the shower and listen to music while I'm showering. So it's good stuff. Fun. 99 bucks or 100 bucks, I guess. So and you might be able to get it cheaper if you hunt around because that's how those things go. Yeah. Good thoughts, you know, John. I think I'm going to toss one into the ring here, Dave. Yeah, please do. Um, dovetailing off of what you said about it getting hot, like red fishbone. Um, it's getting hot in here. Well, you know what, Dave? Wouldn't it be great if you had a uh, small, inexpensive, portable device that could uh, measure the temperature throughout your household? Yeah, like a thermometer. Yes, sir. And, you know, I got one and it's very nice. Um, well, I think it's very nice. So uh, I got one of these at CES. Okay. And it's called the Thermo Peanut. What? Well, it kind of looks like a little peanut. Okay. Um, and if you, uh, uh, so uh, Sense is the company or SEN.SE. Um, yeah. And Thermo Peanut, I mean, you probably got the page up already, is their portable thermometer product. And it is pretty cool. So I was actually using it uh, over the uh, last several months. And you basically fire it up. It has a replaceable battery. It's very small. And it has okay. various mounting attachments. Then you install some software on your smart device, yeah. like your iPhone. And then you bond with it. You pair with it. So sure. it's Bluetooth. So okay. that's one caution is that it, it's uh, not accessible from like across the world. You have to be sure. within the household and within Bluetooth range to talk to it. Makes sense. But it records the temperature. It records the temperature history, which is kind of cool. So it's like a little data logger. And it can also send you notifications when the temperature reaches certain points, which I think is neat. And I think it may also do an audio. But it also sends alerts. And I actually had this happen over the winter, um, is that I would set it at a low point. And the thing is, uh, you know, like most of us, I turn the heat down uh, Mm. at night. And it would actually give me notifications, and it seemed to be pretty accurate. It was like, up, oh, it's getting to be about 57 degrees downstairs. Just thought you'd like to know. Huh. So that's pretty neat, too. Interesting. Um, For 29 retail, bucks, right? The retail price, yeah, 29 bucks. I think is good. Um, you can have multiple ones in a household. Uh, and let me see the last thing. All right. So I didn't try this. So they claim it works with Nest. So that's nice. So it integrates with that. I did not do the IFTTT compatibility, but apparently you can okay. integrate it yeah. with your other things. They say, you know, like your Hue, your Belkin and all that. Um, and you can install the software on multiple devices. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. So they, they make other devices too, but uh, I, I'm reminded of this because someone 
in my Twitter feed said, hey, I'm looking for a portable thermometer, household thermometer, not for medical use, just you know, yeah, right. temperature. And yeah, I'm yeah. like, um, you know, this, this may do it for you. Sweet. Pretty cool, man. All right. Hey, uh, along the lines of, of uh, hearing music when you're not at home, uh, the second one that I had on the list today, also from JBL, actually, are there new uh, E55BT Quincy Jones edition headphones? 200 bucks. They are over-the-ear headphones, wireless or wired, if you like, and uh, they, they the sound of these, they're lightweight, which I love. It, like they, you put them on, you forget that they're on, which is how it's supposed to be. Uh, again, I, as soon as I was willing to be say I was done testing them, um, my wife grabbed them, and I, I think she's. I don't. I don't know where. I, I don't think I'm allowed to know where they are anymore. So, uh, again, that's you know that's the litmus test on these kinds of things for me. But uh, you hear Quincy Jones's voice when uh, when you turn them on and when you walk through various voice prompts and all that stuff. And the sound is, is Quincy's sound signature, but it's, it, they sound fantastic. Really, really excellent. Um, so 200 bucks, comfortable, lightweight. They, they seem weird the way you put them on that, they, they, like they seem almost, uh, like the, the, the top strap isn't long enough and it, it kind of has to angle in. Trust me on this. Once you put them on, they, they just sort of meld to your head and it's, it's great. So there you go. I will put the put that link in the show notes. John, two more cool cool stuffs found left. Is that how we say that? Cool uh, stuffs found. Cool stuffs found. Yeah, I think uh, one that I have been using since I went to WWDC, or since just before I went to WWDC. But now it's available for everyone, and that you folks are going to fall over. That that's little snitch four. I know it's Dave speaking. It's not what? John. You? I know <laughs> you, well, you would you ranted about. Well, until I showed you the light, you uh, it's so well, you figured how to use it in a way that made it useful for you. That's exactly right. And I've been using this one in the same way. Uh, I so little snitch is a network monitor and it can be very, very uh, obtrusive in terms of its notifications and alerts so much so that you might just get sick of them and never really think about it. So at home, I, but what's cool about little snitch and this was true version three, but also very much true version four is I set up profiles, one for home where I just allow everything, but then I have my travel profiles, one where I uh, limit, I allow most things, but I limit iTunes sharing, iPhoto sharing, Crash plan backups, backblaze backups, any of those kinds of things. Um, I, I think my iCloud photo library is turned off on those sorts of things. But I allow like Dropbox and the other stuff that I want to be syncing while I'm traveling. And maybe I maybe I have the photo library. I can't remember. And then I have another one that's like my super limited bandwidth one that basically stops all background tasks from being able to talk on the network and only allows apps that I can like launch or not launch. So if I launch mail, sure, it's fine. If I launch Slack, it sure it's fine. But if I quit those, then nothing that I haven't specifically intentionally launched is using bandwidth. And I use that when I'm tethered or on a really crappy Wi-Fi or, or whatever. So, uh, so I've been doing that with little snitch, but little snitch four adds, it adds some cool things. I mean, you can see where all your connections are going. If you want it's got a new interface for managing all these rules that sort of pop up and it makes life a little bit easier in, in that sense. And 
it comes with profiles. So you can sort of start with a, a, a good baseline that might keep you from tearing your hair out with every single app notifying you because some of these, you have no idea what they are. So they've kind of done some of that and they've, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's pretty good. So there you go. Little snitch four. Have, are you running it yet, John? I could, no. Okay. I'm, I'm so far happy with three, but now that you mentioned some of the upgrades here. Yeah. Um, and the, mo- the, the thing that you mentioned that I think is, is probably the most important, these profiles, because yeah. getting up and running with this, I will totally agree with you. Uh, most users probably don't have enough knowledge to know what they're seeing and whether to allow it or not. Exactly. Um, so for them to take care of some of that for you, I think is, uh, is very nice. My last thing, John, is Mac OS Sierra. No, I didn't say hi, Sierra. I said Sierra. Now I'm not. Yeah, I know. I'm finally running Sierra here in the studio. And the reason I say I'm finally running Sierra is I finally was able to do that after retiring my old Tascam USB audio device because Tascam was always, always late to the game with drivers every time Apple would release an update. And with Sierra, they said, no, we're not updating the drivers for that particular device that I had, the US 1641. Still a perfectly good device. Works great. If you got a Windows machine and you want one, give me a call. I might be able to make you a deal. But I replaced it with a Focusrite Scarlet 18i20. Yes, it's also a USB device. Focusrite makes FireWire devices, and I almost went with the Sapphire just to skip the USB audio, the disaster that is USB audio, especially for real-time stuff. But uh, but I decided to go USB. And the reason I decided on the Scarlet is even though this is a very multi-channel device, I think it's got 18 inputs if you count them all up in, in the right way. Really, it's got, you know, eight uh, XLR jacks on it and then and then eight outputs and it's the outputs that I really need for podcasting here but um, the nice part is it requires no drivers whatsoever you plug it in and the system sees it for what it is there is an app that you can download to sort of configure the way it routes all its stuff internally but you do not need that you just plug it in and it works and so that gives me far more confidence going forward knowing hey maybe i can use this with high sierra and i haven't tried it. i haven't plugged it into my laptop running high sierra yet but i wouldn't be surprised if i plugged it in and just said yeah there's an audio device if i plug that task cam into this computer now um it, it it recognizes that there is a usb device there but not that it has anything to do with audio so very very driver dependent for that task cam thing not at all so for this focus right so really the cool stuff found is this focus right scarlet device but um but nice. yeah, it's nice to be on Sierra and not shackled anymore. That was sort of the, the goal of replacing that thing was to find a way not to be shackled. You know, that was the nice thing when I had my old board blow up and uh, Yamaha provided us with uh, me with uh, the AG06. And all I have to do is plug it in and it says, oh, yeah, OK. The yeah. driver, it's a generic, I guess, USB audio driver. Right, right. Yeah, that used it. to be do like this because that's only a two in two out board, and and that was always fine. But I I didn't realize just because I I didn't need to I guess I didn't realize that things had changed such that USB devices could identify themselves as multi channel 
Well, um, like Firewire has always been able to do that. And that's one of the things I like about Firewire audio is you don't need drivers. The other thing I like about it is that Firewire is isochronous, which means that it's not reliant on system timing. And then you don't get hiccups when you're sending data in both directions in real time or very low latency. Right. Well, right. that's the problem with USB audio in general is that the correct computer is trying to manage the audio flow. And that's not necessarily the right way to go about it. No. <laughs> the best way, right? Right, right. Um, the, the interesting thing is that USB technically supports isochronous communication, but, um, but, it, but it doesn't, at least not on the Mac. So there you go. And I will put, yes, I'll put a link about that so you can learn all about all this crazy stuff. And there you go. So yeah, I'm really excited. And uh, it's, you know, it's good to spend money on audio gear every now and then, so. I guess, uh, I guess that's what I did, but it's nice. Fits looks nice in the studio here. It's red. Although the way I have it set up, I don't get to see any of the red other than like one little badge of it, but it's got a red USB cable too. Cause it's scarlet. So it's fun. Anyway, John, I want to talk about our two sponsors. Is that going to, uh, is that going to fit with your worldview? My friend, it better, <laughs> it better. You're darn right. It better. The first sponsor I want to talk about is Jamf now at Jamf, J-A-M-F dot com slash M-G-G. Jamf now is mobile device management made super easy and also super powerful. So Jamf now helps you manage your Apple devices from anywhere. When you first start your business, it's pretty easy to keep track of your computer and your phone. But as you grow and start to buy more tech for your employees and such, it's harder and harder to keep track of everyone's Macs, iPhones, iPads, and figuring out how to secure the iPad that your salesperson lost can be tough, especially when you're in different locations. Jamf now makes that and a lot more much, much easier. You log into Jamf now. You can do it from your phone. You can do it from your computer, any computer. It doesn't even have to be yours. Obviously, you need your passwords. It's secure. That's one of the things they do. They get that. Don't worry about it. Um, but you can configure settings, you can protect sensitive information, you can even lock or wipe a device from anywhere. Uh, Jamf now, as I said, secures your stuff so you can focus on your business instead and really doesn't require IT expertise at all. These people know what they're doing and they make it really, really easy for you to do what you need to do. And you can start by securing today. You get your first three devices for free forever. There's no limit on that. So if you only ever manage three devices with this, no money comes out of your pocket. They don't even want to know how to charge you. After that, more than three devices, it's two bucks a month per device. So also very, very manageable. And when you compare the cost of, you know, headaches to two bucks a month, 24 bucks a year, Starts to get to be pretty easy math. So go create your free account today. Jamf.com slash MGG. That's J-A-M-F.com slash MGG. And here's the thing. They're targeting business owners with this, which totally makes sense. I think this is a good way to manage your family's devices, especially those that aren't in your house. If your parents have, uh, you know, an iPhone, an iPad, and you want to be able to manage it and tweak things settings wise this leverages apple's mdm stuff so you can do a lot of things with this and it's a fun way to get started too so check it out for you 
your family, your business, your parents. Jamf.com slash MGG. Our thanks to Jamf for sponsoring this episode. All right. Second sponsor is Barebones Software at barebones.com. BB Edit is what they make. Like I said, it still doesn't suck. I meant that too. BB Edit has been in existence for, I believe, more than twice as long as Mac Geekab. And we have been around a long, long time. BB Edit's a text editor. I know it seems crazy that I get excited about a text editor, but I freak out when A, it's not on my Mac, or B, it's not just running. I like to have it running and going. I have files that I open all over the place, right? So I have we have several uh, like Git repositories that we uh, that we use backend here at TMO and Backbeat Media for various projects, and uh, and so you know I open those up locally because then Git syncs them. But I also because I like to break the rules and Adam doesn't yell at me too much. I also sometimes edit stuff live on the server, and I can do that over SFTP or FTP and. The cool part is I open it over that remote connection. I edit on my Mac like it's a local file. And when I hit command S to save, it saves it across that connection. So I am almost editing live on the server, but I get a full featured windows windowed editor. Uh, I get all of my undo history, all of that stuff. And let me tell you that undo history in BB edit saves my bacon so much. I can go make a bunch of changes and then be like, uh Oh, Boom, boom, boom. And I hit command, uh, command Z, command Z, command Z. And I can go right up through and find the thing that I did that broke it. Really, really cool stuff. I love the way BB edit works. You can also use it. You can invoke it from the terminal ever in the terminal. And you want to edit a file and you're like, I don't remember VI and I, I nano is weird. Well, if you have BB edit, you install their command line tools and instead of typing VI space, the file name or nano and the file name, you type BB edit and the file name and it opens the file in BB edit. You can use your mouse. You can use your undos. And when you hit save, it saves it. It's pretty cool stuff. You got to check it out. Barebones.com. Our thanks to Barebones for sponsoring this episode. All right, John. Let's uh, Let's go to some of this mail stuff here. We're going to jump around in the agenda that no one else but you or I and everybody in the chat room at MacGeekab.com slash stream sees. But let's do this mail stuff because I think this is this is good topically and I have no idea how long the rest of this is going to take us. So starting with Ron. Ron says, I recently upgraded my wife's 2012 MacBook Pro to an SSD with an incredible increase in speed. The machine was barely usable before. Most of her stuff was on iCloud and I had uh, the Quicken backup, but I forgot she had mailboxes on her Mac. I think he, I don't know that he meant the Quicken backup, but anyway, uh, he said he'd had a backup, but he forgot that she had mailboxes on her Mac. He says, I tried to reattach her time machine. I found several terminal fixes on the web, but I was unsuccessful. And the question is, I have all these mailboxes in the V4 folder. So home library mail v4 is where all those mailboxes are but i can't seem to get mail to see them how do i get mail to recognize mailbox folders that i am importing them and this gets interesting um really the best way to do it 
if you can, if you're migrating mail from another machine, the best way to do it is to migrate that folder before you ever launch mail. But once you've got it launched, um, my advice, all these folders are going to be .mbox folders, and they should be named with the things that you had named the folders uh, inside mail. So you go to home, library, mail, V4. You can try and move this stuff around on your own, but it often results in questions exactly like Ron's here. The best way to do it that I've found is to go into mail, go to the file menu and say import mailboxes and you get to choose. You can import data from Apple mail and it asks you for the location of one of those mailboxes and you point to that and then it will slurp in everything. You can also pull in files in mbox format. Um, that this is an industry standard format mail mostly supports and you can try pointing at that too. But using mails import feature really is the best way to get that stuff across. Uh, if you're, if you're pulling it in that way, have any thoughts on this, Mr. Braun? No, no. <clears throat> okay. Are you sure that I, I haven't had to do an import for, <clears throat> sorry. Yeah. I saw, I see the same import menu that, that yeah. you do. And yeah, I think that's the, uh, that's the best way to go about it's, it. It is. Yeah. Um, it, it, and it's not always perfect. Mail is not great about this, which is why I say, if you're migrating to a new machine, uh, get that folder home library mail is the one that you want to go after. V4 is inside of that and has all of the mailboxes and other things. But, um, but home library mail, that's the folder you want to take from your old machine and replace it on the new machine before you ever launch mail. Uh, that will almost certainly give you the simplest path short, short of migration assistant, which sort of does the same thing uh, to, to bringing that over. So well, the only thing I'll add yeah. is that in addition to making a backup, which of course should include your mail folder, there is, if you're in mail, um, in the mailbox menu. So if you highlight a mailbox, go to the mailbox menu, there's export mailbox. You may want to do that as an additional level of assurance yeah. that your uh, mail is saved. I don't think I've ever done that, but right, do as right. I say and not as I do. Right. Everyone, okay. Yeah. No, <laughs> but just nice. to let you know that's there. Um, or if you want to get you know, just a subset of your mail uh, to someone in a somewhat portable format. That's probably, yeah. probably a good way to go about it. Yeah. 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 Good stuff. All right. Cool. And then uh, also on the subject of mail, listener Jim writes in and says, or asks, uh, where's the question? I got it. I knew. Okay. Um, he says, I'm getting ready to move my hosting to another provider and have a concern about email. My email, he says is pop. So no concern there because nothing's being stored on the server. The benefit of using pop, I suppose says my wife, however, is using IMAP and outlook. Uh, she has some email, which she must not lose. I will make the change to the new hosting provider about a month before my current agreement ends. I'm setting up email forwards on all email accounts at the current host. So new email is delivered to the existing account and is also forwarded to a third account for each user just in case smart. Uh, 
For example, my wife's email will be delivered to her current address plus forwarded to her Gmail account. I'm doing this for each of the existing users, so nothing will be lost during the period that DNS servers are being changed from old to new hosts. So the issue here is that the once mail, once the migrate, the migration is a, a full cutover, right? So you don't have access to both the old and the new simultaneously. That's Jim's belief. I, I actually think there would be a way to connect to the old server, maybe just via IP address or something like that while it's still up and running. But let's assume that you can't do that, at least for the sake of this. He says, so what do I do about her old IMAP, IMAP messages? While these now exist simultaneously on her personal devices and the host, those older important messages do not exist on the Gmail account since the new forwarded, the new forwards were not put in place when those older messages came in. It says, I'm concerned that when I change DNS records, her devices will sync to the new address and wipe out all of that email that's in her box. That's possible. Um, especially if your mail server names and usernames and passwords are exactly the same. In fact, I would not do that. So here, here I'm going to give my general advice for migrating from one IMAP account as your main IMAP account to the other. And then we'll talk about Jim's situation because he, he's, he's got something potentially at least a little bit different. My general advice is create a new account, a second account on your Mac in mail, not, not like a separate user account, but inside mail, add your new mail hosts account. Um, you will have both. And then what you can do at that point is go into say the inbox from the old account, select all copy, go to the inbox for the new account, select all paste, or you can, you know, you can, I think you can do it in mail by highlighting a message or multiple messages and saying, move to or copy to i don't think you have to use the clipboard but uh if yeah if you if you highlight it you go to in fact that's probably better than using the clipboard so if you highlight all the messages in the in the inbox and then go to the message menu and say copy to i wouldn't say move to because move will remove them from the old server i'd say copy to and then choose the inbox on the new server it will copy them locally but then immediately sync them to the new server and everything's fine. So you get your inbox, your outbox, your trash, and it will intermingle. If there are things there, uh, then they, you know, it will, it will intermingle. So if mail's coming into the new one, that's fine. That's how I recommend you do this. And then for things that don't match, you're going to have two inboxes, one on each. You're going to have two sent boxes, one on each trash, junk, etc. But if you have like a, you know, stored receipts folder on the old one, and you don't have that on the new one, create it on the new one. And then do the same thing. Copy the messages to it. That's the preferred way of doing it. And I, like I said, I think that would probably work for Jim. Uh, but we don't quite know that yet, especially because he's doing these DNS cutovers. So let's assume it won't and be safe about it. So to follow your advice, John, in terms of the backup, yes, do a backup. But also create local quote unquote, on my Mac folders. So you go to the file. Uh, sorry. Oh, where do, how do we create a new mailbox? Yeah, yeah. So you go to the file menu. Sorry. And then you go over to the mailbox menu, ignore the file menu <laughs> and say new mailbox and choose for location on my Mac and then make on my Mac mailboxes for, you know, old email inbox, old email sent box, old email archive, whatever you have mirror that structure on my Mac and label them all, you know, old email 
dash inbox or whatever, you know, whatever the mailbox is. And then do the same thing, copy everything from the old email on the IMAP server to these on my Mac mailboxes. That way, when you cut over to the new server, you still have copies inside mail that aren't going to go anywhere. Let it sync up with the new server. Let whatever is going to happen, happen. And then you can backfill with all of that stuff or not. Maybe, maybe you're okay just having them on your Mac and you don't need them synced to the server. That's fine. You might want them synced to the server. If there's mail that you want to be able to get say from your phone or your iPad or whatever, but that's, uh, that's how I would do it. What do you think, John? I like it. That's actually a, okay. Another form of making a local copy, right? Doing it on my Mac. Yeah. On my Mac. And that way it's inside mail. So you're, you know that we, I mean, there's no guarantees with anything with computers, but you can be fairly certain that mail is going to happily see it and migrate it around and all of that good stuff. So, yeah, that's my thought anyway on that stuff. It's crazy moving mail around, but if you just stop and, and think, plan, you know, it's like the old carpenter's phrase, right? Measure twice, cut once. So measure twice, measure twice, back up twice. Actually, back up three times, cut once. There it is. The two, three, one. You might not have to measure, but I think the measuring is sort of the thoughtful part of it. Think about it twice. Back up three times. Cut over once. There you go. That's my thought, John. Yeah, good. Wasn't there something with like the threads of life that you're supposed to... Eh, never mind. I don't know about that. I've never heard of the threads of life. It was a sci-fi book I read okay. long ago. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Um, no, there was a, a, a being that would, uh, you know, measure and cut the thread that represented your life. And, uh, and you had to do that right the first time around. Yeah. Yeah. You have to cut everything right the first time around. All right. You want to take us to listener Dave, my friend? Listener Dave. Not you, but listener Dave. Listener Dave has kind of a head-scratcher, I guess. And he says, I run Mac server on an old 2012 MacBook Pro, which predominantly runs our household email server, as well as a caching server for iOS, macOS, and iCloud updates, etc., and all is backed up to an external hard drive using Carbon Copy Cloner. I would love to find a way to be able to close the lid and have the server not go into hibernation mode but I haven't found a way that works. Can you help? Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, so out of the box, the way that every Mac portable that I'm aware of works, Dave, is that when you close the lid, it does put it to sleep or hibernation. Kind of the same thing, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, as an interesting aside... We've talked about this before, but how does the Mac even know that the lid is down? And actually the way that it knows this um, is that there's a magnet in the lid last I checked. And then I think there's what's called a read switch in the case. And the way it knows that your lid is shut is that it, it sees those two getting close to each other and concludes hopefully accurately that you close the lid and it puts the machine to sleep. Sure. Now, I suppose one way you could get around this is you could fiddle with one or both of those so that the machine does not think it's 
should go to sleep, I don't think I would necessarily recommend that. Right. Right. As a hilarious aside, if you get a powerful magnet and put it around the case of your machine, you probably will be able to put it to sleep. <laughs> we mentioned that trick once before. But I'm questioning why you necessarily want to do this. Now, if you want to, uh, I mean, if you want to save power, one thing I could recommend is you just want to, uh, if your concern is, is the power that's being drawn by the screen or the lifetime of the screen, uh, system preferences, energy saver, and enable display seat may do it for you oh yeah yeah um that's the way i have my portable setup um the only however there is another option dave and this is a i I thought it'd be worth mentioning but because apple does mention it there is a way to operate a mac when the lid is down a a notebook yeah and maybe this will do it for you and it's what they call um, clamshell or closed display mode. Right. And basically, the Mac is smart enough. So the gist of this is, is that if you do close the lid, but then you do attach an external display and external peripherals, the Mac will operate in that mode with the lid closed. Right? Yeah. Right. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and their article is use your Mac notebook computer in closed display mode with an external display. But will that work without an external display plugged in? Well, no, that's the thing. You've got to plug in an external display. Do you? Well, that's, I, what, I mean, they claim. It, that's what they claim. I know, but, but what I'm wondering is if I plug in a USB keyboard into the side of, you know, the USB port on my on my laptop, I think that'll wake up my Mac even if it's even if the lid's closed. And and so the the trick would be to set up remote access to it, right? Either SSH or or just screen sharing. Make sure that works when the lid's open. Close the lid, then plug in the keyboard and try and connect remotely that way. Yeah, I don't have my laptop right here, so I can't I can't do this real time. But but that as we're as we're talking through this, that's kind of what comes to mind is that by plugging in an input devices and a mouse in theory would uh, would possibly do the same thing. I mean, there's no guarantee that a keyboard would, but but some input device, keyboard or mouse, is generally what um, what it would take to do that. Yeah. I mean, they say in their article, the requirements for closed display mode are an AC power adapter, an external keyboard or mouse or trackpad, either USB or wireless. Right. Maybe a USB-C to USB adapter and an external display or projector. So those are the four requirements that they set up here. And then they go through various scenarios, depending on whether you're using a USB keyboard or mouse or a wireless keyboard or mouse. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And Big T in the chat room asked, you know, if you, he says it does work with a dock too, such as the OWC Thunderbolt 2 or 3 dock, if you don't have an external monitor and it was closed, how would you know a mouse worked? And the point isn't, to make sure the mouse works, it's to make sure it wakes up the computer, right? So the mouse is just the trigger to wake it up and really plugging it in, or maybe you got to click the button once, uh, would probably be the thing that does it. So I, I think this might work. Um, and and the way you try. would know, the way you would know is you might hear it. If it's got fans in it, you might hear the fans, you know, warm up, but you might not. Um, you, the way you would know is to, try and connect via screen sharing to it from, you know, from another computer. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm just suspecting that if a display is not involved, it may go back to sleep again if it only sees one of those devices. But right. Easy enough to. Right. Uh, it might. That's the problem is even if it does wake up, it might it might not stay awake. Yeah, that's true. Well, because it's going to see it's going to say, well, there's no display right. and the lid's closed. So I better go back to sleep. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, Big T points out something as well in the chat room that in theory, would a remote connection just wake it up? Right. Um, and let me see if I can test that here. Ping Dave air. Is that, what do I call it? Yeah. Okay. So no, my computer's not responding to pings. Um, I believe it has power plugged into it. So let me go. And the way you can connect to a computer that's not appearing in, here's your quick tip for the day. Um, normally the way you'd connect to a remote server is you'd go in the finder, You'd look in the sidebar, you'd find in the shared section, the, the name of the computer, you highlight it. And then in the upper right, you click share screen. But if you can't do see it there, you can try another way. And that's to go in the finder to the go menu and say, connect to server or the shortcut being command K and then type VNC colon slash slash just like you would for a website http colon slash slash but vnc colon slash slash and then either the name or the ip address of the device now i'm trying this now with my macbook air but um i'm not convinced that my macbook air is connected to my main wi-fi network i think it might be have most recently been connected to one of the ones I'm testing, which I, I believe at the moment is the ubiquity amplify because um, I'm going to talk about this stuff next weekend. So I've got to, you know, check all the firmware updates and everything. So um, Andy in the chat room is saying that magic packets don't work on Wi-Fi, but I have woken up computers ac across Wi-Fi before. So um, I'm not, I, I, I know it might not be magic packets, but there are ways of waking up a computer across Wi-Fi because I've done it. So yeah. my test failed, but may not I, be indicative of future results. Yeah. I just, I did a similar test myself here. So I, I enabled screen sharing on my MacBook pro. Right. And then I put it to sleep. Well, as soon as I enabled screen sharing, which I normally don't have on the MacBook pro, I do have it on my mini because I often have a need to connect or think I have a need right, <laughs> to connect from the MacBook Pro to the, the mini upstairs. But the thing is, I, I just did the opposite, Dave. So I enabled screen sharing on the MacBook Pro. It immediately showed up in the shared sidebar on my Mac mini, but it then disappeared when the machine went to sleep. Right, right. Because it went to sleep, so it's not available. Yep. So yeah, to that point, I guess, you know, the, what is it? Magic packet or wake up packet. Yeah, well, you also have to go into Energy Saver and check the box that says wake for Wi-Fi network access. Uh -huh. So if you haven't checked that, then then it won't wake for Wi-Fi network access. And if you don't have that checkbox, then it means that your particular Mac is not capable of waking for Wi-Fi network access. You might just see wake for network access or wake for Ethernet network access. So, yes. Where's that? At? Oh, an Energy Saver? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, so if you go into Energy Saver, you should see right on that main power screen, uh, wake for something network access, and it might be nothing. I might... see wake for network access. Okay, so your computer does not support wake for Wi-Fi. 
Yeah, I think okay. it's just yeah. a little bit too old. Twenty twelve. Yep. yep. Yeah, and I think that's what um, that's our what listener had. Our listener Dave had too. Yeah. All right. Let's um let's talk about waking a, another thing, and we'll go to listener Mark, who experiences this problem similar to something I've described. He says. I have two monitors, an HP and a Samsung attached to a late 2014 Mac mini, the HP, and he's running uh, 10.12, 10.12.5. So Sierra, the latest official release. The HP is connected using HDMI and is the main monitor. I have the mini scheduled to shut down at 17.05 and turn on at 06.50 every day. Lately, the HP has a message saying check video cable after boot and the Samsung is the only monitor recognized. I've turned off the HP with its power button, and when turning it back on, it is recognized in the monitor panel for one to two seconds and then disappears. Unplugging the cable and putting it back in has no effect. I found the only way to get the Mini to recognize the monitor is to turn the power strip off to cut power. Um, he says, I, I know, that's bad. I have stopped the scheduled shutdown. Any thoughts as to why this is occurring? I would actually be curious if... Not just using the monitor's power switch, but cutting power only to the monitor and not to your Mac solves this problem. I think it might. Um, I'm having I'm having a similar experience with my Monoprice 28 inch UHD screen. Sometimes when I wake it from sleep, it simply doesn't wake up, and the only solution is to unplug the monitor from power and replug it, and then the Mac sees it. But the interesting or the, the monitor sees that it's connected to the Mac, and I think that's the problem because my Mac thinks the monitor is connected and will put windows over there and treats it like it's it's there the monitor just doesn't wake up from whatever signal it's getting from the mac i've tried different cables um i'm about to try a different monitor uh monoprice is going to swap it out for me because it's under the the warranty but i'm not convinced that's going to fix it either but i kind of want to narrow that out um one thing that has worked but only for a short period of time, maybe a couple of weeks, and then the, the problem has recurred, is an SMC reset. So um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it, I do know why that would change things. It, it changes potentially the way the Mac sees that screen and then what signal it sends to tell it to wake up. But um, yeah, it's interesting. And, and listener Mark, I did share this with listener Mark before the show, and, uh, and he pointed out that at least for a couple of days now, the problem hasn't happened. The, the SMC reset worked. Uh, I'm not sure if this is something with the way Sierra is or just the way uh, Macs are in general, but, um, but yeah, there's some weirdness about third party monitors. So there you go. The final thing I could offer. Yeah. I don't know why they hide this Dave. Yeah. But there is the detect displays button. Yeah. yeah you're right. That is hidden. I don't know so, if I've tried that. The thing is, we, we, and I think we recently, one of our esteemed writers actually did post this as a tip. Um, yeah, yeah. So if you're in displays, normally you're not going to see this button. And I don't know why they don't, this why, why it's hidden. But if you hold down option, you should see in the lower right-hand corner of that window, a button that says detect displays. I'm going to try that next time on my, it may be on my Mac in the office. Yeah. I mean, see, the Mac should. sees it, though. That's what I'm saying. It's like when I go to that screen, the monitor's dark, but the Mac sees that it's connected and I can drag windows there. Right. I just I just can't see them. I'm just wondering if Detect Displays yeah, might sends out. Sends that signal. Yeah. You know, does a re 
saying, hey, every reenumerate display, them. talk to me. Yeah, right, right. It's just, it, I mean, that should happen when the machine wakes up, right? <laughs> right. But well, it's not. And in a sense, it does, but it, it not enough. Yeah, it's weird. I know. I know. So anyway, I would love any thoughts that you folks have on this. I'm kind of tearing my hair out. And I, I, the regretful port position that I'm in, and you know, it's not really that regretful, folks. Let's, let's be perfectly honest. I threw away the box for that monoprice monitor because it's big and I don't want to save that, that junk around. But um, monoprice won't do a cross ship on the return. And I've even talked to people like, you know, that, that I shouldn't be asking about this. And I did anyway. And uh, they can sort of do a cross ship, but but they can't send me the first one. And then I send this back. Uh, so I don't I, really I want them to send me a box for this monitor so that I don't screw it up and I don't have it. So I've got to like fashion a box from other things that I have. And I just don't really like that idea. But anyway, that's why I haven't sent it back yet. <laughs> of course, the other solution is to just throw away those two monitors and get a larger monitor, even larger. Yeah, but there's no guarantee that won't happen. Here, I, I'm curious, I, really what I'm curious is, has anyone else experienced this? Obviously, if somebody has like the magic solution, that's even better. But I'm curious how widespread this third party monitor issue display port thing is, because up until Mark, I really hadn't heard from anyone else that, that had this issue. So let us know. Let us know. It's good stuff. All right, John, let's. um Let's do David and let's call it a show, shall we? David, um, David has, where's that thing? I gotta, I gotta put it on the right spot. David writes, he says, I took your advice and I went with a mesh network. I got rid of my N750 Netgear router and I now have the Orbi AC3200 and it's awesome. He says, my Wi-Fi problems are over. But now that I have a new router, my Plex server will not give me remote access. I've searched the Plex forum and the internet, but I'm not getting anywhere. I guess because I'm new at this. Please help. Please tell me the info you need me to send you so that I can help. Get, you can help get me. The, he wants it fixed. Um, okay. So here's the way this works. Um, my guess is that your old router had UPnP enabled. Universal plug and play. What that does is it allows devices on the network to request that ports from the outside be forwarded to them. Okay. And, and this is handy because that's how remote access to internal services works. And your Plex uh, sits on, I don't know if you said it, if it sits on your Mac or it sits on a disk station or whatever, wherever it sits, it doesn't matter. It's inside your network, not connected to the outside world. So you need to port forward to it. You could port forward manually, but if you don't port forward manually, then something needs to do that port forwarding. And that's what UPnP does. There are a lot of people that hate UPnP uh, or are skeptical of it or are concerned about it because it presents obvious security issues. You're letting any device internal to your network forward ports to itself. And that can be... Uh, source for an attack, especially if something inside your network gets compromised. You either need to turn on UPnP in your Orbi router and, and there's a way to do it. You just go into on the Orbi, you go to advanced, advanced setup, and then there's UPnP. It's off by default. You turn it on. That's probably going to solve your problem or figure out what port Plex wants forwarded and then add that manually 
to your port forward list instead. And there is a site that helps you figure out not only what ports to forward, but will even show you screenshots of doing so on your router. And it's called portforward.com. Handy little site. We'll put a link in the uh, in the show notes for it. We'll put a link for this particular issue, but um, but you know it works for it works for anything. It's it's pretty awesome actually, and makes it easy to figure out what ports you need to forward, and then and then shows you how to do it. So portforward.com. I think that was possibly the first cool stuff found ever on Mac Geekab. Low those many years ago, but uh, but that should do it. So if you if you're okay turning on UPnP, your life will be a lot more convenient at the risk of potential security hole. I've always run UPnP here. I've never run into a security issue with it. I have run into one issue where that D-Link webcam insisted on grabbing ports from the outside world that I even told it not to grab. And it said it wouldn't grab them. And then it grabbed them anyway. And it bothered me. So, um, so I, I just decommissioned that webcam <laughs> because I use UPnP for a lot of things. Skype uses it. Uh, but again, I could manually do all these port forwards. I just, you know, it's convenient not to, but I, I understand the risks and I'm pretty in touch with my network. So I'd probably notice if something was a, a muck. Uh, so there you go. Thoughts on that, John. I like UPnP. Yeah, I know. I missed it when it was gone, when I was test, when I've tested other network products, because yep. I either had to do it by hand I'd rather let it take care of it. Right. And I'm with you. Um, there's, I don't think there's any authentication involved in it, though there could be, but it sounds like most people don't. Right. We've talked about take it. it that far. Yeah. Somebody suggested, I think it's PF sense, which is a open source router software or router firmware, I guess uh, that will allow you to set, to allow, to allow or disallow UPnP on specific devices. So you can say, yeah, let my Plex server do it, but don't let that webcam do it, right? That would be brilliant. Um, you know, we make our choices when we pick our router firmware. That's how it goes, my friend. It's good stuff. So, any event. I do want to do a couple of things here, John. I want to thank a bunch of people if I, uh, if I can. I want to thank, first I want to thank all of our Mac Geekab Premium subscribers that contributed this week. And there were lots of you this week. On the uh, $25 biannual plan, we have Mike M., John I., Andy W., Michael P., Jason T., Joel F., Craig S., Teresa B., Norton B., Dan E., Tony G., John O., Mark P., Richard J., and Gary T. You rock. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. For your renewals this week. Renewals on the uh, $10 monthly plan are Dave C, Michael L, Jason A, Bob P, David B, Martin T, Frank A, Shannon K, Abdullah B, Doug L, Barry F, Michael B, and Mark R. Thank you to all of you as well. And we had one one-time contribution of 100 bucks this week from James V. Thank you so much, James. You rock too. We had a ton of iTunes reviews, John, like the tons we asked for them. So if you go to MacGeekUp.com slash iTunes, you can leave us reviews. Um, 
I don't even know how many of these I can read because there are so many of them that you folks put out. But I will say thank you to Vulpine7 from the UK, Fred and Seg from USA, Donna Ray from the USA, Muggle315 from the USA, who said, John and Dave are the click and clack of the Mac. Every week I find at least four new things I didn't know how to do. Flyleaf Mad City from the USA says if you're inclined to make better use of your Mac and other Apple products, need a question answered or a problem solved, this show is a great resource. Dr. Mac from the USA said very nice things. And Apple is 1984 from the USA as well, who says non-political. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So far. (laughs) Very good stuff. Very, very cool. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all of you who sent those in. You folks rock. Good stuff. We really, you know, this show, uh, it's pretty obvious if you listen once that, that this show is about you folks. You are the, uh, you decide the topics. You're the, you know, you're the producers, right? You send in your questions. You send in your tips. We pull it all together. We, we, um, we curate based on what you send in. But really, you know, if you guys don't send in a topic, we probably don't cover it. Although there are those things we bring in and, and then it becomes a topic. So it's really, really great. Thank you so much, John, anything, uh, anything to, uh, to add before we, before we bring this one out. Hmm. Anything to add? I'll add one thing, Dave. Yes. Well, and maybe more than one thing. Feedback at MacGeekUp.com. Feedback at MacGeekUp.com. And he said, feedback at MacGeekUp.com. I did. But you know what else he's going to say? What am I going to say? I can almost predict it. Premium at MacGeekUp.com for all of you that support us directly. Was that, that it? what I was thinking. No. What I was thinking, Dave, was don't get caught. Made up.